0: Hello there. Three quick things before the podcast proper. One, the first holiday episode of the 8pm quiz was fun the other night. You can find it on YouTube. The next one is on Thursday the 29th of December at 8pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. Please join us. You'll find the details on my YouTube channel. Two... The 9pm Hardware Refresh crowdfunder is currently open. Check the website for that. And please, consider pledging your support. I mean, it's Christmas, right? And three, yes, it's Christmas and other holidays. So my best wishes to you and yours for whichever holidays you celebrate. I'm not a big one for the holidays myself, but I hope you enjoy doing what you do. It's important.
1: The following episode of the 9pm edict contains politics, hope, despair, cardboard animals, and crawling in circles, but no strong language, except in a piece of music.
0: Friday the 23rd of December 2022. It's no longer spring, not for weeks, so it's Definitely time to wrap up the spring series. And today's topic is all things China with Yunjiang, the inaugural China Matters Fellow at the Australian Institute of International Affairs. In this episode, we talk about China's previously strict COVID lockdown and its intergenerational inequality.
1: To me personally, this whole lockdown business is almost um, locking up young people to protect the older people
0: we state some
1: obvious facts. China is, uh, of course, not exactly a democracy.
0: And, of course, we talk about Senator Penny Wong's historic visit to Beijing earlier this week, as well as much, much more. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm Penny Wong Cardboard Dog COVID Update with Yun Zhang.
1: Now, China and Australia are marking half a century of diplomatic ties, but there hasn't been a lot to celebrate recently. A rift that began in 2019 only deepened over the next three years. Australia's new government set about improving relations early on, with Prime Minister Anthony Albanese meeting President Xi Jinping at last month's G20 summit in Bali. Chinese trade sanctions do remain in place, but Wong's visit is the first by an Australian minister in three years. It's the latest diplomatic offensive, indicating a thaw in relations is underway.
0: And then the news reports all went on to talk about it being an icebreaker of a meeting, a thaw in relations, <laughs> and there were pictures of Senator Penny Wong near a pond in Beijing which was covered in ice, so we had the visual metaphor there. <laughs> Yun Xiang, welcome to the podcast uh, on, on really quite an historic week in yeah. Australia and China's relations.
1: Thank you for having me back. It it has been a quite uh, a big week. It's uh you know, a, a, the first time in 3 years of a high ministerial visit. Uh so quite quite significant I'd say. And and it came I think for me at least uh surprisingly quickly.
0: Yes. Yes, uh given how diplomacy normally goes, particularly I don't want to say particularly, but with China, but it's true there is a a measured pace to diplomacy with China over the years. Um, although, if we look at the um, the actual agreed statement, mm. it doesn't actually say very much, uh, but no. it does uh, agree that we will uh, we will uh, be talking about six issues in the future w- without any detail of those issues being bilateral relations, which is anything, trade and economic issues, consular affairs, climate change, defence and regional and international issues. Now that covers a lot of things. That's almost everything there is between countries, isn't there?
1: Well, that's right. That's just a, a very broad spectrum of issues within a, any bilateral relations, <laughs> that's, really. That's right. uh, But I think w- w- what's important is that it does mention things like, you know, comprehensive strategic partnership, which I think under the previous government especially, uh, they, they tend to uh, not mention the fact that we do have a comprehensive strategic partnership. Um, and I think the statement also mentioned the restarting dialogues, a yes. few of the... Dialogues uh, lots, Again, lots it's of not
0: dialogue a really words. concrete outcome. No, dialogue was said a lot. <laughs> Strengthening dialogues. Respectful dialogue. Yes.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, it's diplomatic speak. That's what you kind of expect.
0: That's right. And, and and as we say, it was the first visit of any kind in three years. And certainly uh, with our previous government in the Morrison government, uh, China was not even returning phone calls. So, uh <laughs> This is quite a big change and especially, of course, on the 50th anniversary, uh, Wednesday was, uh, the 50th anniversary of Australia recognising the People's Republic of China as a legitimate nation, one of the first in the world, Gough Whitlam as Prime Minister to do it, certainly before the United States. Um, and I can't remember the word, it was about the whole the whole Taiwan thing, uh, it Australia didn't say that it recognised China's claim, but it... Ah,
1: acknowledges.
0: Acknowledged it. Acknowledges, acknowledges it.
1: China's claim. Does not necessarily mean we agree with China's claim.
0: <laughs> That's right. We just, well, we, we, we have noticed it. We we see that you have this this point of view and we will not say anything about it. Mm. Australia does have this weird... Dual relationship with China, our biggest tra- trading partner, but at the same time, increasingly, particularly with more American influence, as a a threat, you know, a military threat somehow, and uh, you know that that's been amped up a bit with the whole Aukus pack, mm-hmm. and, uh, new submarines for for Australia, which you know oh, you, we you don't, don't know have when to be that will. A genius. <laughs> well, that, that's true. <laughs> That's true. That, that, that is still uh, vaporware at this stage. We don't know whether that's going to happen. But uh, there is that sense of an, in, an increased militarization of East Asia. I think we, it's fair to say that there has been an arms race there for some time, uh, not just China, of course, but all the other nations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of what you expect in that, uh, you know, as uh, economic activity uh, as measured by GDP increases, um,
0: of course, defence spending would also increase. Well, yes. Yes. And I've, I... That's actually a very good way of putting it, it's, isn't it? Really, and <laughs> given China's increased GDP over recent years, it's only reasonable, I suppose, that they modernise their armed forces. Because it's not—if we go back fifty years—it really was the PLA as millions and millions of conscript soldiers, and and that's not how military action happens in this century.
1: No, that's right. Yes, uh, military technology um, and how we conduct uh, warfare has uh, changed significantly. Um, but in terms of military spending, defence spending, I think if you look at um, some authoritative figures, not just from the Chinese government, but from international analysis, um, as a percentage of GDP, um, China's defence spending is actually quite consistent, quite flat. And I believe it is potentially think it might be lower than Australia's as well, as a percentage of GDP, that is.
0: Yes, uh, it is. I've just got the figures here. Now, Australia uh, is currently spending 2.11% of GDP on defence. China's is only 1.3%. Um, and compare that to the United States, which is 3.74%. Uh, that's yeah more than three times uh, China, uh, and they have similar GDPs these days. Speaking of the United States... Uh, Australia tends to follow the the American lead when it comes to policy in East Asia, um, which which means we do have this strange dual relationship with with China as our major trading partner, but also uh, seen as a a competitor strategically. Uh, do you see this changing?
1: Um. I think our relationship with the United States being an alliance will always be very important to us. Um, and we're not the old one out. We look at countries in a region uh, such as Japan, such as Korea. They both have... Um, and you know, they have a very close defense and military relationship with the United States, mm. as well as a very close economic relationship with China. And for a lot of them, it's, um, their, their economic, if you will call it, dependency on China is even greater than Australia's. Um, so in that sense, we're not that different from a lot of other countries in the region.
0: It's interesting because I think Australians mm. like to think of the, the country as different in so many ways. When really it's <laughs> it's just a, another mid, middle-sized regional exceptionalism. power. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's not quite as bad as American exceptionalism <laughs> in that our mission to save the world. But I've always thought this idea that we have this thing called mateship, and I thought, what friendship and camaraderie and supporting your the people around you and what every every. Every culture has that. Every nation has that. That's what, yeah. It's yeah. what creates society. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, look, I, I had hoped we would have lots more detail to talk about after, the, after those conversations in, in Beijing this week. But no, not yet. But it really is a big change.
2: These queues in Beijing show the desperate scenario China has been trying to avoid. In full PPE, people are brought in coffins en masse and carried in for cremation. The abrupt lifting of restrictions has led to a new surge in cases and deaths. The government scaled back its COVID-0 approach after protests across the country. But life after lockdown has come at a cost
1: suddenly they feel like they've been putting into this very dangerous situation without mentally, but also, you know, medically prepared for it.
2: According to officials, China is reporting just 2000 cases a day. But experts believe the exact numbers to be much higher with limited natural immunity and low vaccination rates among the vulnerable, some experts are predicting an explosion in cases, with US modelling estimating deaths to exceed 1 million in 2023.
0: Now that report uh, from the ABC was from Monday, and we'll come back to those really quite alarming predictions shortly. But looking at all the news stories, this decision to open up, Hmm. seems to really all be about the economy and especially exports. Is that the case? Um,
1: Partly it is about the economy, but it did come on the back of a really intensive protest, widespread protest um, around China. Um, I believe even before the protest, the government was looking at um, opening up the country slowly. Uh, but because of the protests, I think they really um, realized the urgency uh, of opening it up, and they basically um, let everything go, they let the rip. As such, um, it's quite strange. <laughs> Just
0: quietly, I hate that term, but that's not really that it. But I mean, but yes, I mean, a friend in Beijing tells me that it's still the case that the Chinese-made vaccines are nowhere near as effective as. Uh, those that we're, we're fortunate enough to have in Australia. Um, and there's this it's odd n- It's definitely refusal. not as effective, yeah.
1: no. But it's, but um, it is still effective in some way. Though I mm. think the real problem is that, especially among the elderly, the vaccination rate is still very, oh, very yes.
0: low. And yet they can just go and get it, can't they?
1: Yes, Well, yes. in theory... Uh, yes um um but i think there there has there is a, vex- a vaccination hesitancy among the elderly mm. a lot of them um are skeptical of um the government claims um of it being safe um yeah, unfortunately, uh, amongst especially the elderly population, um, the 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 degree and the level of uh, scientific understanding is not as uh, high as we would like.
0: Yes, that's the flip side of China having made so many enormous advances in education in the last few decades. Is the flip side is there is an older and less well educated population. Um, who probably disagree a lot with their younger children about many things. (laughs) Yes,
1: Uh, to me personally, this whole lockdown business is almost um, locking up young people to protect the older people. I think I believe there is a little bit of an intergenerational inequality um, when it comes to uh, China's lockdowns.
0: That is interesting, and we'll we'll talk a bit about some of the young people's uh, reactions and, and behaviours shortly. You mentioned the riots. I remember seeing one story a while back, and I've, I've heard about the quarantine lockdowns. If you suddenly test positive while out and about, then off, off to the quarantine camp you go, no matter what you were doing at the time, even if you were taking food back to your family, will Bad luck, you're off. Um, and there was a at one of Foxconn's factory. Now, Foxconn is the largest employer in the world, big electronics manufacturer, many of the Western uh, electronic brands, and everyone always says Apple, but so many others as well are made by Foxconn. There's one factory, and I forget whether it was in Shanghai or Shenzhen, probably Shenzhen, because everything's in Shenzhen like that, but it, it had 40,000 employees, a few tested positive for COVID, and then they were going to, of course, lock down everyone in the factory. They would not be able to leave the factory. Something like twenty thousand of those forty thousand workers jumped the fence, mm. and there was a riot. While that was a big one, these were riot, riots you mentioned. These were happening all across the country, weren't they?
1: Yeah, it's unfortunately a really common practice um, uh, during the zero COVID policy for factories and companies to basically lock up their employees. So the employees have to sleep um, in the factories and then to work. Um, Look, labour right protection is dismal, (laughs) dismal in China. Yeah. Um, And this sort of things, and people work extremely long hours. And, of course, as expected, you know, of course people are fed up with this kind of
0: treatment. I did see mention of this being, you know, public protests at the level not seen since uh, the the things that led up to Tiananmen Square in uh, 1989, 33 years ago. I mean, is that the case? It is isn't
1: the case in that it was so widespread. Um, So protests in China um, has been continuously happening, you know, we, we don't hear that often in the West, but people in China do protest. Usually, though, it is on local issues, for example, some kind of uh, pollution issues, environmental issues, or financial issues. And what the central government usually do then is to blame the local government uh, when something (laughs) goes seriously wrong. Um, But this time, it is a little bit different because it was quite widespread. There were protests in many different cities. And because it's a very it's a central government policy, uh, it's basically you know, headed by Xi. Xi, Xi Jinping was very much about, oh, I, I'm personally responsible for management COVID and zero, zero COVID policy. So it's a bit hard for the central government to then uh, put the blame, all the blame onto local authorities.
0: Does this therefore represent a, a back down for him? Uh, uh, will he suffer politically for this?
1: Oh, look, I mean, China is, uh, of course, not exactly a democracy.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so, and, and he just got his third term. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's quite secure in his power. I, I, I don't see it being, um, I mean, I, I don't really see it as a threatening to his power. I don't think he's going to lose his job over it. Um and on top of that, of course, all the – I mean, it's, it's a bit like, you know, party politics or everyone in the party, in the Communist Party, agreed with the policy as well. Um, so I think in over the next few days and next few weeks, I'm sure the Communist Party will come up with some kind of a rationale to, um, to justify why it has uh, acted the way it did and how that uh, – basically everything's under control I mean that's that's pretty common for uh, common rhetoric um, from the from the party
0: and yet as we we heard some of those uh, models come out maybe a million people will die half a million was one of the better efforts is China equipped to handle that I mean part of the the, the problem I saw uh, with this sudden lifting of the the restrictions is that it happened so quickly. Hospitals didn't have time to prepare. They knew, obviously, if you lift the lockdown, there are going to be more cases. Mm, uh, yeah. And so on. And and no one was ready. And, of course, we, we have now shelves in pharmacies in Australia. You can't get paracetamol because yeah. people with relatives in China are, of course, sending it to China, as they've done in the past with baby formula and... Yep you know a whole range of things when when there's been a, a quality or supply problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well the thing is China had what 3 years now to prepare. Yeah. But it didn't. It didn't use that time. I I personally I think it didn't use that time wisely to you know increase the capacity of its health system. Um its the health system is still Really not up to scratch in terms of you know ICU beds in terms of primary healthcare. There is no equivalent of uh, primary healthcare. You know general practitioners in China. Most people when they get sick they have to go. They basically go see a specialist and sometimes they have to line up for a very very long time to see a doctor. Um, so these kind of problems means that it is very hard for China to handle any kind of uh, health crisis. But for the last three years, they, they don't seem to be using that time wisely to increase that capacity.
0: Yeah, it's 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 put you in quarantine and come back, but that becomes an an endless cycle.
1: That's right. they used to it all on quarantine and on testing, yes. rather than you know on vaccination and on um, improving healthcare system.
0: Hmm. There there are certainly some lessons there, and I hope uh, I I hope not too many people learn them the hard way. Mm. Well, on that uh, somewhat sombre note, let's uh, take a break and do the housekeeping. So much for my memory. Uh, I've just checked that uh, riot at a a Foxconn factory was not in Shanghai. It was not in Shenzhen. It was in Zhengzhou, Uh, where uh, it was described by the BBC as the world's biggest iPhone factory. Uh, There's videos showing hundreds of workers marching, some confronted by people in hazmat suits and riot police. Um, It it was about the lockdown. It was about staff being locked in with COVID-positive people in the same dormitories. Uh, There was also a pay Dispute, so it's it's more complicated than just the COVID, but those um, lockdowns, quite the thing. Well then, on to the housekeeping. Um, This is finally the final Spring Series episode, even though we're nearly a month into summer. So thank you to all the people uh, who contributed to the Spring Series crowdfunder. Thanks this episode, uh, because, you know, you, dear listener, make this podcast possible through your uh, generous contributions. Thanks this episode uh, to Dave Gawkerger, whose uh, subscription, his edict is 02 Schooner Annual Subscription Uh, Renewed. Uh, Thanks, Dave. Also, thanks to Edwin Grutius and Carletta Abinak, who also threw some dollars into the the tip box. If you'd like to join them this time, I mean, there are tips, but if you were listening uh, within sort of real time, you know what I mean. If you're listening currently, my current crowdfunder is the 9 p.m. Hardware Refresh 2023 because the MacBook Pro that I use well, for this and for everything, uh, which you got for me uh, seven and a half years ago. Well, it's now seven and a half years old. Um, it might explode soon because the batteries have gone. <sighs> uh, should be all right for another uh, few weeks. Uh, so if you would like to... <laughs> tribute to its replacement, that's the 9pm Hardware Refresh 2023. Go to either the9pmedic.com slash refresh2023. Go to stilgarian.com. You'll, you'll see it there. At the time of a recording on Friday uh, lunchtime, we're 80% of the way to target one. That is fabulous. Thank you all. I'd love to hit that that first target before Christmas. Um and I think it's possible. Uh, I'd, I really would like, well, the campaign goes until Australia Day. I'd, there's a further target. So I'd love it to just steadily go all the way up to target four, maybe even beyond. But target one before Christmas. Wouldn't that be that be lovely? The9pmedic.com slash refresh 2023. And now back to Yunjiang. Time for some trigger words. Uh, as regular listeners to the podcast will know, this is the glass jar of transparency. It contains folded up pieces of paper. Each piece of paper has a word on it sent in by a supporter in the hope that it will trigger a conversation. <laughs> so let's pull one out, Ewan. Oh, dear. Gavin Costello, who's a regular supporter. Hi, Gavin, uh, has sent in the word wide body. Now,
1: Wait, what? What? Wide Wide body.
0: Uh, wide body, W-I-D-E-B-O-D-Y, and I assume he's referring to wide body jet aircraft. So big airliners, ones with two aisles in them, not one. That's how I'm reading it.
1: Uh, oh right, well that's a very technical word. <laughs> I've yeah, never well, heard of it before. <laughs>
0: oh okay, well yes, uh, wide body jets are the big airliners that have. Two aisles down them rather than just one oh, down the middle with three seats side okay. to side. So, okay. yeah. Well, funnily enough, I, I have a, a, a China-related angle for this, and this I'm going to cheat a bit and lead into one of your reports on this, because up here in the Blue Mountains, west of Sydney, tourism is one of the biggest economic factors. And one Mm. of the most important sectors was the rapidly growing Chinese middle class doing a week week in Australia and they'd come to Sydney and one day they'd do the Opera House and Sydney Harbour Bridge and another day they'd go to the zoo and then Mm -hmm. another day they'd do a trip up to the Blue Mountains
3: and do
0: some things. And then then after three days in Sydney they'd do the Great Barrier Reef and then they Mm -hmm. might do Uluru. And that will mm-hmm. you know, I've never been to Uluru still, neither have I. Oh, <laughs> isn't what? that terrible?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, that is terrible.
0: <laughs> but that that was your package tour, and indeed, uh, uh busloads of uh, not just China but from Korea and Japan and everywhere else in the world, these tourists. But but China was, of course, a big part of the market. Mm-hmm. It has not come back yet because mm-hmm. yes, you could leave China and go on a holiday, but then you'd have to go into quarantine on the way back and what uh yeah it's all yep. too hard so i would very much like to see those wide body jets coming from beijing and shanghai and guangzhou and all of the other cities to come back to australia wide body though you had no you didn't know the word
1: no i mean i just call it what was it called was it another word jumbo jet
0: jumbo jet yeah Yeah, big planes, big plane.
1: (laughs) I mean, we could talk about tourism if you like. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So, so one of the reasons of obviously quarantining uh, is a reason why uh, people are not leaving China. Um, Another one is. You know, there are a lot of Chinese students uh, in Australia uh, during COVID still, uh, despite uh, what Scott Morrison has said about them, should just, you know, go back where they came from, basically.
0: Um, and yeah, we're very good at saying that in Australia. Um, <laughs> oh, dear.
1: Um, but, uh, you know, prices to go to China um, during that time was for, for international students, as uh, was very, very, very high. Uh, I remember pre-COVID times, uh, flights to China sometimes you get for like $600, $800 return. Wow. And you think, wow, that's, <laughs> I know, it's a bit ridiculous. Um, but I've seen then um, during COVID times, the flights can go up to return Um, and um, there was especially a shortage of flights between Australia and China and apparently flights going through New Zealand was a lot cheaper as well. Um, There's some speculation that that was due to politics, the fact that our Ah, relationship was not so great and uh, for planes to fly to China obviously need some kind of permission and they prefer flights from New Zealand than from Australia.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. The plight of overseas students in Australia during the lockdowns when we closed their border, that was really tough because – not only uh, could could they not leave and go back to see their family during the breaks from university and so on, so many of them will have been working in the hospitality industry mm. in yeah. those jobs, and without tourists coming into Australia, those jobs weren't there either.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and that's because. Right.
0: And because they weren't permanent residents in Australia, they also weren't eligible for any of the extra money that was going around. Um, It all seemed very unfair, I thought, in that we promote Australia and say, yes, come here, your parents can buy you a good education in Australia, and then as soon as it gets tough, Anna, screw you. Um,
1: Ah, yeah. Uh, We've never – I mean, I think things are getting slightly better, I think, it used to be even worse, you know. International students get That's exploited. True. They don't. They didn't get any help from universities. Universities used to probably see them more as a cash cow. Uh, but be, but I think more recently, university has been putting more effort into um, ensuring their rights are protected. And I hope that continues. I hope it gets even better. Um, and and one problem as well with international students having such negative experience in Australia is that they become more nationalistic. So a lot of them, before they come to Australia, had a very rosy view of Australia. Uh, they think, you know, we, we, we're in the West, we, we enjoy a good life, we have freedoms. But then when they encounter discrimination, when they encounter things that, you know, um, people not obeying, labour rights, labour laws, then they, they then see, oh, well, Clearly Australia is a not very good country and then they become more nationalistic and start to basically defend China on everything.
0: If people want to hear an example of that, and I'll I'll dig out the names and mention them later, but uh, there is a very nationalistic brand of hip-hop music coming out of China. They are saying things about white people um, which, if we said them about black people or brown people, we would be immediately cancelled as outrageously mm. racist. Mm. Um, yeah. And that's a real movement. Um, particularly, yeah. I think, more young working class Chinese who feel they're, they're, they're factory slaves making gadgets for the West.
1: Oh, okay. So inst- it's a bit like Trumpism. Instead of you know, seeing us through a lens of uh, structural exploitation, global capitalism, they're seeing us through a lens of race. Yes. You know The foreigners are to blame for everything.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, I, I was surprised. Uh, as I say, I'll link to some of these clips on the podcast website. I was surprised at just how aggressive it is. And yet at the same time, it's adopted a lot of the symbolism of American gangster rap, so the gold rings and the, the expensive oh. cars, the sports cars. <laughs> and again, okay. It's, it's, it's really quite weird, worth checking out. You also, in your work, Yun with the Australian Institute of International Affairs at the moment, did a report on... China attracting scientific talent. And this this does kind of cross over to the whole international student thing. China, of course, big country, big research program, lots of mm. research, but it's not getting the crossover of the exchange of researchers coming to China to well, take part. Well, at least
1: not permanently. So China yeah. have always had a brain drain problem uh, where yeah. a lot of their top scientists and other talents leave the country to go to other countries and most a lot of them go to the united states and they mm-hmm. tend to stay there um for china that's has not been a problem and they don't restrict people leaving because they know that you know when people go outside the country they often then have this linkage to china back and they can foster collaboration and exchanges. So the collaboration exchanges are there, but they want them to go back permanently to build ah. up um, Chinese universities. Sure. And um, that has not been happening as much as the Chinese government has liked. So despite all their, you know, talent talent program, talent recruitment programs, uh, most top talents appear to prefer to stay overseas still.
0: That is interesting, even though I saw a chart the other day of China just roaring ahead in terms of published papers on yes. biotech, artificial intelligence, mm. ocean work. And, and that's not just down to the, the population. That's down to a real solid increase yeah. in, in Chinese research.
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. They are, mm. I believe, they have overtaken the United States in terms of publications, academic publications. Um, in a lot of fields, um, they are the leader, world leader, in, in, in a lot of fields now. Um, so they have overtaken um, the United States. Um, but I, from the government's perspective, what they think is that they, they should be doing more Um and a lot of those talents are still not going back, um, and we're, we're seeing instead what they're saying is that they're, they, you know, going back to short term, part time, and they, they're doing collaboration, collaboration exchange, which is still good for China's um, scientific development, but uh, it's they're not they're not doing as much as they would like in terms of training the next generation of scientists in China. So then, then you know what what government want is. Self sufficiency. So they want the next generation of scientists to be trained in China to grow China's scientific capability. But parent, they they're just not. um, I guess they just has not been as effective effective as they would like. And that's especially you know with zero COVID, with the control of ideology, a lot of uh, focus on security and control. Just like in Australia, you know, when you when you focus Mm. so much on national security on controlling information. Um, it's not really good for scientific advancement.
0: Well, no, it's it, it's the exact opposite. Interestingly, one of the big examples that I followed quite closely uh, at the time that the company was banned from Australia, which is Huawei. Mm. Huawei, um, uh, one of the leaders in 5G technology and now 6, 7G beyond, working on the, the next generations of, of technology. Um, uh, there was a time when I was... Watch all of the speeches by Ren Zhengfei, the nah. the boss and founder of Huawei. Who who he always thinks big. He, 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 he yeah, he, he's he very quotable. Has this, he is extremely quotable. He has a very poetic way of speaking. Um, I I get the feeling he's read a lot of um, classical Chinese literature in his years. Um, I mean the most chinese
1: it, people going through school has to That's well, that's true. <laughs>
0: that is that is true even even he of the generation uh that went through the cultural revolution but even so uh yes um but Huawei's research department alone is 40,000 people oh, at their yes. research campus and yeah the reason they have so many patents involved in the 5g technologies and whatever is when the um, the protocols were being agreed upon at the international meeting uh, there would be like one person from Nokia and one person from Cisco in the US mm-hmm. and 15 engineers from Huawei at the meeting all having their input into this um, it was it was Fascinating to see how just the sheer volume of engineering talent in China meant it was dominating these standards bodies around the world. Um, uh, Less so – well, they're still dominating the standards bodies, but, yeah, that's become a whole political thing. I'm I'm waffling on here, but, again, just the the scale of it all. um.
1: There's, I mean, it's a reflection also um, of the fact that STEM – Is much more valued in China than humanities.
2: Mm,
1: mm. Um, So you have all the smart people. uh, They encourage these people to go into STEM rather than you know social science and humanities. Um, And it's and as a result, a lot of them when they go, they also go overseas. So for example, I think um, up to twenty percent of uh academics in engineering in Australia were born in China as well. So a lot of our our engineering talent is actually from China. Um we we perhaps have a bit of a more balanced approach, you know, where we, we encourage uh in some it depends your parents, how you brought it up. Or <laughs> I,
0: was about, we- I was about to say, aren't you aren't, aren't you aren't you all meant to become doctors and, and lawyers? <laughs>
1: Uh, well, well I, I, luckily, I never really had a pressure from my family to go into any field. <laughs> but yes, I, I do know a lot of people, you know, you're either doctor or engineer or lawyer.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, see, some, some stereotypes are kind of true. Um, that's not a bad one. That's not a bad one. Um it's something true. I should say too. The Soviet Union and Russia has always valued mathematics in particular, no, yes, that's true. And, yeah. and, and, Iran, and engineering. I
1: think as well.
0: Yes, um, and uh, I saw an interesting um, documentary recently that uh, everyone in the Russian army learns to calculate the odds of winning a battle according um, to these equations on force <laughs> multipliers and things. Oh. Wow. Um, which is how they decide to run their attacks in Ukraine. The problem is the formulas don't work if your field commanders are lying to you about how well the army is doing.
1: Oh, Uh, okay. Well, yeah, if the input is not uh, up to standard, (laughs) then the output is gibberish
0: yeah yeah yeah, so so oh yes, we made limited advances and yes we we killed uh, two hundred of the enemy or this that and the other when you you really didn't, and you might have advanced a bit, but you had to withdraw again, so the the next commander up punches that into the the the, the, <laughs> the, the tape there's a book that you look up apparently to tell you the odds. <sighs> mm. But yes, it just doesn't work if you're lying. Uh, well, that was a, a fascinating little rabbit hole, which started with Wide Body. Uh, thank you, Gavin Costello. <laughs> that aggressive um, anti-foreigner hip-hop. Uh, I mentioned just before, I've just looked it up, I was thinking of a story I read and a video I saw back in 2017, five years ago, Um, and it's from Chengdu, which is the capital city of Sichuan province, and in particular an artist called Fat Shady, um, who I was just looking at the Chinese transliteration of his name and I was going, how does this pronounce? And they went, oh, Shady. It's just... Anyway, Fat Shady from Chengdu. In 2017, he released this track called Whack La Wai. Now, whack as in just whack as in bad hip hop term for put-down, right? And La Wai is a semi, uh, well, it means old foreign, but it, it's a, a not polite way of referring to a, to a foreigner. Um, He's oh, just a small part of it.
1: Qual
0: well, that's, yeah, uh, Whack Low by That Shady. I have linked to uh, the video on YouTube, uh, which does have subtitles in English. It's aggressive stuff, uh, and uh, the imagery is interesting. There's a more recent comment on the YouTube page. Now, Obviously, YouTube comments are the ultimate source of truth and understanding. But someone called Martin B posted a comment two months ago. He says... Uh, I was in Chengdu back when this was made. The whole story is Fat Shady was hanging out with his girlfriend at the Shamrock, a well-known bar and hangout spot for foreigners in Chengdu, and some random English teacher stole his girlfriend that night. Well, by stole, I mean she willingly left him for the laowai. Then Fat Shady got mad and asked his rich daddy to lend him money so he could make a song about how he hates these stupid foreigners, and then no one cared because it didn't change anything uh, and then he goes on uh, to point out that the song is, was in fact removed from social media in China uh, by the censors because it gave a bad image of China and indeed that does appear to be the case. don't know whether that latter story is true but I have also linked to an article uh, in The Beijinger which uh, has links out to other nationalistic or patriotic uh, rappers and hip-hop artists from, from China. Now, Yun, your other report this year was uh, about Antarctica, China's claims on Antarctica. Now, uh, just before I uh, go into this, I will mention that we had uh, Dr Liz Buchanan on some months back too talking about Mm. Australia and Antarctica too. Uh, That's a fabulous episode to listen to. This one, though, we'll talk particularly about China. Now, China technically isn't part of this sliced-up pie of Antarctica that we sort of, we, we, Western (laughs) white nations, sort of agreed upon a century ago. Uh, But China does have bases in Antarctica in the bits that Australia reckons are Australia.
1: That's right, yeah. So China is not a claimant country, and because uh, China has signed up to the Antarctica Treaty, it means it can never really claim territory in Antarctica as well. Um, and Australia's claim (laughs) we we like to say (laughs) Australia's claim, but it's only recognized by very few countries around the world. Um, most countries do not recognize Australia's claims. Uh, but you're right as well that um, China has uh, many research bases uh, in Antarctica, um, and uh, most of them are in. What we claim to be our territory now, Australia claims for a third of Antarctica About as well. That,
3: yeah, big um, chunk.
1: yes, a big chunk. So, so, uh, so it's not surprising that a lot of their bases will be in Australia's territory. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this, of course, creates the usual fear and has done of oh my god, China in Antarctica, expansionist nation. You argue that it's not about militarization. It's not even necessarily about resource exploitation, which is a, a contentious topic. What is it about?
1: Um, well, I, I argue that it would be very difficult for China to uh, unilaterally start mining in Antarctica. Uh, but there are other resources that China potentially uh, is interested in, one of its fisheries. Um, and that's governed by a set of uh, uh, treaties as well. Currently, though, in terms of quail fishing at least, uh, Norway uh, is uh, the biggest. Um, I think that's followed by Korea and China. Um, but China does have an interest in Antarctica because it is one region that is. That that does have strategic potential. Let, let's not uh, let's not overlook that. But also the fact that it does come under a set of a particular uh, international governance, and as China wants to be seen as you know a leader of international governance, um, it needs to be engaged in all sorts of issues. One of which is Antarctica. Um, so there, there are many many interests involved there, and of course Antarctica being. Uh, being a, 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 a country, that not country, being a continent um, in, in, the, in, the, in the South Pole, it has a huge effect on climate as well. And every country obviously has a stake when it comes to international um, climate, when it comes to climate change.
0: Well, we're running out of time, so I'll, I'll leave that there. But do, uh, dear listener, go and uh, read Yun's report, or both reports, and all the things we link to on the podcast website, uh, but, uh, I do want to sneak in this one last item because I think you'll enjoy it.
3: During the lockdown, students in universities across China have practiced strange activities such as making paper dogs, crawling in the playground late at night and doing crazy literature. Paper dogs are made from cardboard boxes. This strange pet quickly became popular. Images of students playing with paper dogs are seen in dormitories in other places in the university. The Communication University of China has become a promoter of the crawling at late-night movement. This video shared on the internet show, the university's students crawling in circles on the playground at midnight. East China Normal University students have urged everyone to practice this activity. Crazy literature is a literature form consisting of writings that use words expressing anger, resentment, madness, or despair. In explaining this phenomenon, netizens said that suffering lockdowns too much causes students to experience psychological problems, and strange activities are a manifestation of the issues. Some other netizens think Chinese students are borrowing strange actions to express their opposition to the Chinese Communist Party's CCP zero-COVID policy. Some citizens think Chinese students passively fight against the CCP with these strange actions. However, this way of protesting shows the cowardice of today's Chinese youth. Now, Chinese students do not dare stand up and express their objections as boldly as the generation of students who participated in the pro-democracy demonstration in Tiananmen Square more than 30 years ago. Chinese authorities quickly became aware of these strange activities and immediately tried to stop them. The crawling of students was under surveillance, therefore posts on social media sharing information or discussing this new phenomenon have been deleted. Meanwhile, some CCP media outlets have misled public opinion by saying that the students practice strange activities because they want to increase social interaction and that crawling is a way of taking care of their health.
1: Yeah, I mean, okay.
3: Now, that is from a
0: YouTube channel called Spotlight on China, which doesn't identify itself beyond saying it provides viewers factual news and insights about China. So, I I assume this was done
1: before the protests.
0: Yes, this was done in November, I think. Yes.
1: Okay, okay. Well, maybe earlier um, in the year. I I hope they realize their ways and prejudices (laughs) against China's youth after the outbreak of the protest. Then,
0: what a thing to say—the cowardice of the Chinese youth. (laughs) But uh, the crawling in circles thing. uh, This was supposedly um, a, a passive process, I suppose, against the the nine six six movement or the nine six six philosophy of working from nine a m to six p m six mm-hmm. days a week um, and we spoke last time I think about uh, tang ping the the act of lying flat or on uh, rejecting this constant work uh, I, th- I think crawling in a circle is is again meant to symbolize fruitless activity in the factory, but your life in fact goes nowhere. Um, you are just right. crawling in a circle. Yeah. Um,
1: okay. Like involution. Yeah.
0: Yep. But you can look that one up yourselves, folks. But the cardboard dogs. Yeah. This really is a huge thing. Um, the photos are amazing. Yes, all the <laughs> delivery cartons that bring you things because you're in lockdown. You make animals out of them. And well,
1: that shows creativity. That's right. And, and you know, pet industry. Is huge in China now. I remember you know, when I was in China, which lived in China at least, uh, which was more than 20 years ago now, um, hardly anyone had pets. But nowadays, ah, so many people have pets. Um, <laughs> as a cat lover myself, I, uh-huh. unfortunately, I locked out my cat from my room for this. Um, I, I have a cat, a ginger cat called uh, General Miao. Um,
2: but yes, of cats, uh,
1: cats and dogs, very, uh, very popular amongst the middle class in China, and, and as pets, not just as guard dogs in rural regions. Um, so I, I, I can see why people, you know, want, want uh, to have a cardboard pet if they don't have access to a real one.
0: There <laughs> is a photograph in the South China Morning Post <laughs> um, uh, of. Students having taken their cardboard dogs out and arrayed them in the street as an army, and <laughs> they've also gone out there to to uh, illustrate their boredom. They've brought seats and and little study desks and lined them up in the street as well with all of their cardboard dogs <laughs> to show. <them. laughs> um, I think that, I think it's fun, and I I think Ooh. saying you. Making a cardboard dog or crawling in a circle means you're too cowardly to take on a Tianan- Tiananmen Square-style situation. I think, come on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, everyone. Uh, lockdown is obviously psychologically uh, hard for for young for for many people, including young people, and. Of course, they w- they want to cope in any way they can. Well, we will do the same.
0: I think we had Australians complaining that kids in year 11 and year 12 at school, oh, they're not going to have a normal growing up because of the, the kind of restrictions in Victoria and, and in Western Sydney. And I look at what had been happening in China up until only, well, a week ago mm. really and thinking, Guys, you've got nothing to complain about. These young people have just had three years of stuff where people are, you know, welded into their apartment uh, buildings, and yeah. the the thing can't that, leave that,
1: the home to even for grocery shopping. You know, at least yeah, in, even in Victoria, you are allowed to leave your home to get <laughs> <It's> groceries.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. Look, we could talk. For hours, obviously, but we should we should wrap it there. What do you think to finish up on? What do you think we should look out for in China in in, in the new year? Well, it's not Chinese New Year for another month, but
1: <laughs> that's true. Actually, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Came, I think next Chinese New Year is actually quite early next year.
0: Early, it's quite end early of, this year. End yeah. of
1: January, uh, yeah. Mm. Uh, what do we look out for for in the next year when it comes to China? Mm, uh, in in China, Well, when we talk about Chinese New Year, that's the one holiday where whole country's on the move. And for the last two years, most of them haven't been able to really, uh, you know, move. And some, some of them haven't seen their families. Uh, of course, luckily, we have technology these days where people can have video chat, but um that that still doesn't uh count for the totally replace um uh in person meeting of course Mm. um so that will be one to watch whether what's what, what kind of a you know um travel that people will be undertaking for chinese new year and what then does that mean for um infection rate um so i guess that that will come uh International engagement for travel, especially you know, in, since we're outside China. I haven't seen my family for a long time. I would very, very, very hope to see them next year, sometimes next year. Uh, that would be good. And I'm sure a lot of uh, people with families in China is thinking the same as well.
0: I think the, the more I thought about it as you were speaking, I thought, yep, that. COVID will be the thing that shapes the next year for China. That the, the diplomatic things, well, they're already underway. We kind of know what they are. We kind of know who the players are. Uh, the world's attention is really on, on Ukraine at the moment and and that part of the world uh, for conflict. We've got oil prices to deal with. Yeah. Mm. Um, Gas prices to deal with, although that doesn't affect China quite as much. Um, eh, COVID. We have ended on another sad note, Yun. COVID and people getting it. But let's let's call it the hopeful one of families yes, getting hopeful. it together for the hopeful first one. time in three years. Yun Zhang, thank you so much for your time. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Well, that's all the edict for now. I, I should quickly mention, I, I mentioned the 966 philosophy before. It's actually 996, 9am 9 to 9pm, six days a week. No wonder the kids are crawling in circles. Uh, all the links at the9pmedict.com, please support the 9pm Hardware Refresh 2023. I really do need a new computer before it explodes. Uh, so drop over there and, and do the needful. The next episode, well, I reckon I might do a bit of a, an end of year thing uh, before New Year's Eve. But until then, I'm still Gerrion. Wash your hands. The
1: 9 pm edict is a skank media production. Sorry.